All right. Well, I, I love Christmas time, uh, just generally. Just I'm a big fan of Christmas, but I also really enjoy it as a preacher. Like, I am one of those preachers that every year, you guys don't know this because you don't hang out with preachers all the time, but some preachers are like, ah, I don't do Christmas series. <laughs> and I'm always like, I do. I love Christmas time. And it just feels like a special time of year. And I always want to spend time bringing special focus. Uh, two special times of the year for me as a preacher, well, there's a lot of special times, but seasons are Christmas and Easter, you know. And really, Christmas is that moment where our champion, Jesus, entered the ring with death through Mary. And Easter is when he exited the ring victorious. And I cheer on both occasions, right? Like, yes, Jesus is there. He's here. And then when he steps out victorious, that's Easter. The tomb and Mary, the entry and the exit from the ring. And I love to highlight both for sure. Uh, at night, recently, Sarah and I, uh, before bed, have been watching Chopped. Has anybody here watched Chopped? Just show of hands if you've ever watched an episode of Chopped. Wow, surprisingly few. Chopped is this uh, cooking competition show where they take four chefs and they have a basket full of unusual ingredients. And sometimes it's just like they're messing with them. Like today in your chopped basket, you have a chicken and a bag of nails. And, <laughs> and like they have to take these really weird ingredients and make something that tastes delicious. Um, but at the end of each round. They have three rounds, and at the end of each round, they bring the sort of the beginning dish, the main entree, and the dessert. And they bring their thing at the end of each round, and the judges critique what they made with their surprise ingredients. And something I've noticed is that the chopped judges love contrasting things. Like, they're like, oh, man, the, the bitterness of this was offset by the sweetness of the cream or whatever. I noticed you have this crunchy ex exterior, but on the inside it was cheesy and gooey. They just love that. And as I think about Christmas, Christmas has this emotional flavor profile that just holds together opposite things. I'm thinking of like the dark night with the Christmas lights. You know, I'm thinking about the cold outside and the warm gathering togetherness inside. I'm thinking about that sorrow and joy that are mingled in Christmas celebrations. I was telling Jennifer and Andrew in our staff meeting this week how it seems to me that very often the, the, the tune of a Christmas song sounds almost sad or melancholy, even while the words are joyous. It's a strange flavor profile that Christmas has. But one of the interesting things about Christmas to me personally is I've loved Christmas now for all my 42 years on planet Earth is the way it holds together the old, established, cherished traditions with things that are brand new. You know, what would Christmas be without hauling up the same decorations from the basement? and the same time-honored celebrations and the songs that we knew when we were a kid. But at the same time, what would it be without the possibility of a wildly unexpected surprise on Christmas morning? So it's this interesting mix of old and brand new. And the thing about Christmas is, if there was any portion of Scripture that Christians know front and back, it's the Christmas story. 
Some of you who have no aspirations to being an actor or actress at all, as kids actually played the Christmas story out in front of strangers. You know the story because you were part of pageants. You've heard the songs. You've listened to sermons. You've read the story. You've been in Sunday school lessons and flannel graphs. You know the Christmas story, which poses a challenge for me as a preacher because we all know the story so well. What can I teach that doesn't just hit upon the same redundant stuff you've ever heard for loads of times? But there is something in the Christmas story that we can become numb to because we're so familiar with it. And that is how wildly unexpected and surprising it all played out when it first happened. The Christmas story is almost too familiar to us. But if we come to this time-honored account as though we were hearing it for the first time, it contains some really crazy surprises. And when the writers of the four Gospels in the Bible, two of them really highlight the Christmas story, and almost with every paragraph, they seem intent on hitting us with how weird this all is. The words of the Christmas story just drench with novelty, surprise, unexpectedness. For example, when Matthew begins his Gospel account by listing the genealogy of Christ. Matthew is going to write his gospel to a Jewish audience, and so his, as a matter of first importance, he needs to make the case that Jesus, the Messiah, is in the line of David through his father, Joseph. So he lays out Joseph's, his adopted father, Joseph. So he lays out Joseph's genealogy. But he does something supremely unexpected. He mentions women in the genealogy, which wasn't done ever in that culture. You did not mention women in genealogies. The genealogy was patriarchal. It went through the men. But Matthew highlights four women and who were notable for a number of reasons, but mostly because it was unexpected to highlight those four women. You might know their stories already. Uh, he mentions Tamar, Rahab. Ruth, and Bathsheba. These are four stories that the original uh, audience would have understood very well. Jews who were well-versed and deeply steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures would have instantly heard those names and would have had a story to hang off of the name. We don't have time today to go into all their stories. But there is a fifth woman also mentioned in the genealogy, and that, of course, is Mary. Mary. And so what we need to see from this is that Mary's, is that Jesus' family tree was a Christmas tree. And that Christmas tree had some really weird-looking branches on it that Matthew highlights. One of its branches, we'll call it the Tamar branch. You can find her story in Genesis 38 if you're really curious. This branch looks really bad. It's dead with dry brown needles on it. But when we look closely, there is the soft green of new life in its tip. Another branch, we'll call it the Bathsheba branch. You can find Bathsheba's story in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. It's twisted and broken. But from its brokenness comes an unmistakably beautiful fragrance, the heavenly aroma of grace and redemption. One of the branches, we'll call it Rahab. 
You can find her story in Joshua 2 and 6. This branch looks like it was attached to the trunk with wire and was not originally even part of that tree. But amazingly, it seems to be alive and flourishing. Another branch, we'll call it Ruth, starts out growing straight down and looks kind of sparse and scraggly, but then it suddenly shoots up and is thick, beautiful, and full of life. The trunk of this tree, when we read the genealogy in the beginning of Matthew, is crooked and twisted, like a tree that grows under very adverse, unusual circumstances. There are a lot of twists and turns in Jesus' family tree, a lot of horrible sin, some truly disastrous life choices. The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are called the gospel. And the word gospel means good news. And they're called that because they contain the good news of the most significant story in all of history. That's the story of Jesus. And this is not a dusty old story. It is not make-believe. In fact, it's not really history at all because it is a story that continues to unfold today. And its principal character, Jesus, is not dead and buried somewhere. He's alive and well. It's a living story, and we're living in it today. In fact, all of history is really His story. The Gospel of Luke contains our text for this morning, and which was written in the form of a letter to a man named Theophilus. When I think about these four women that are highlighted in Matthew's genealogy, ending with Mary and the coming into the world of Jesus. It seems to me that what Matthew is highlighting and illustrating is this. Jesus, when he came, came to set straight that which is crooked. He came to make whole that which was broken. He came to make right that which had gone horribly, horribly wrong. He came for the whole world. Many of the women in this genealogy well, were not Jewish at all. They were foreigners. And Matthew highlights them saying, this is why Jesus came, not just for one people, but for all people. And he came not for good people, but for bad. He is a redeemer God. And we see this in the great family tree of Jesus. And that's our story. I stand before you as a wicked man who has no standing with God for, by myself. God does not look on me and say, Josh Tate, he's one of the good ones. He's mine. <laughs> he looks on me and he sees Jesus. If he looked on me, I'd have no chance at all, but I'm covered in the robes of Jesus, as it were. Jesus gave me his righteousness. I have nothing to brag about. My life is just as twisted and wrong and broken and dead as any of those people in this story, apart from the redeeming work of Jesus. And so Luke sets out to write a gospel account to a man named Theophilus. It was this gospel, the gospel of Luke, was written by a first century doctor, a physician named Luke. And that's why we call it Luke's gospel. And Luke begins his gospel with these words. I'm not sure if you've ever noticed this before, but in Luke 1, 1 through 4, he writes this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, 
Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So Luke is writing a letter to a man named Theophilus. And he's trying his best as a historian. He's gone back and talked to people who it says here were eyewitnesses from the beginning. Now, that's an interesting line in light of what we're going to be talking about this morning. Luke's gospel contains the most information of all the gospels about Mary, the mother of Jesus. And it has the fullest account of Jesus' birth. In fact, Luke's account is unique and very interesting in that it tells us things that only Mary witnessed. And it even tells us what Mary thought and felt at different times. So when he says, I went back and interviewed people who were there from the very beginning, who is he talking about? I believe he's talking about Mary. How could Luke know what Mary thought and felt? For example, in Luke 2.19, after the shepherds come and find the baby Jesus in the manger, and they proclaim Jesus' coming as the Messiah, we're told, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. How could Luke know that unless he talked to Mary? And that's, I think, what he's getting at. Those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. I believe, and so do many Bible scholars, that Luke, in researching his gospel, spoke with Mary in the flesh. And that is why this gospel account contains so many vivid details from Mary's perspective, even detailing Mary's emotions and her private inner thoughts. Now, I want to give you that information because it really puts our text for this morning in perspective. In this account, as related to us through the inspired writings of Luke, we are hearing Mary's voice speaking to us down through the centuries about her son, Jesus, who he was and why he came. She wanted us to know these things about her boy. So open your Bibles with me. We're going to be in Luke 1, 26 through 38. Luke is the third book of the New Testament. It's sandwiched between the Gospels of Mark, and John, and we'll be reading out of the first chapter, verses 26 through 38. Luke, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this, "'In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary.' And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High." And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? 
And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now this passage describes an encounter between Mary and an angel named Gabriel. Gabriel has some amazing news for Mary. Guys, you want to talk about surprises. <laughs> Put yourself in Mary's shoes. This is a, not just a lightning bolt out of the blue. I mean, this is a complete breaking into the normalcy of her life with something that is very abnormal, very strange that is going to happen. Gabriel has some amazing news for this woman that she will be the mother of the great hope, the long-awaited Messiah. Gabriel tells Mary a number, thi number of things about the baby that will be born to her. His name will be Jesus, which means Savior. He will be great. He will be the Son of God. God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign on that throne forever without end. The first thing that Luke establishes is that these events occurred at a specific time. He says the sixth month is when this conversation took place. And it happened in a specific place, a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And they happened to a specific person, a virgin betrothed to Joseph whose name was Mary. Luke is saying, he's beginning this account by saying this is a historical event that happened in the life of a real person at a specific time and place. This is not a fairy tale or a myth. Luke leaves no room for that interpretation. You can say, this is a hoax. You can say, I don't believe it. But we cannot massage Luke's message into saying something other than what he intended it to be. Luke is saying this happened at a specific time, in a specific place, to a specific person. And Theophilus, you can go and talk to her yourself. She was still alive. In verses 26 and 27, we are told that the angel Gabriel was sent from God. This fact, presented by Luke at the outset, I think is maybe the most important and most fundamental fact about this story. The angel, we are told, was sent from God. The story of Jesus' coming starts with God. It comes from Him. An angel was sent from God. God is the initiator. Man didn't make this happen somehow. Jesus wasn't summoned or requested. And in being sent, Gabriel came to an otherwise unremarkable girl in the backwater town of Nazareth who was probably 13. I say that because 13 in that culture at that time was the age of betrothal. So in that age at that time when you turned 13, it was common practice for you to become betrothed to be married at that age. And so she was most likely a 13-year-old girl, a teenager. 
1 Timothy 1.15 states, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Pause with me for a moment to think about that statement. Christ Jesus, who is himself creator of the universe. John, which we've been studying verse by verse, chapter by chapter, begins by saying that in the beginning, everything that was made was made through Jesus. Jesus is the creator. And as God, he is separate and distinct from his creation. But in this moment, the creator God would move himself through Mary's physical body into the created order, into the universe he had made. This is a very mysterious moment where the creator becomes part of creation. This is the plan that Gabriel is giving to Mary. Jesus, Mary's God, would become a a person inside of her, and yet at the same time, and very mysteriously, he would remain also fully God at the same time. Fully God and fully man. That's Jesus. And that's a surprise. Nobody saw this coming. Nobody predicted this. Well, the Bible did, but nobody at that time apparently thought that's what would happen when the Messiah would come. They had misunderstood the Bible and all that it said about the coming of Jesus. And so this message is very surprising. Jesus was moved to do this because of his love for sinners like you and me and also Mary. Mankind had been created by Jesus and in his own spiritual likeness, but we had joined Satan in rebellion against the God who had made us. Yet Jesus came into the world that he had made in order to save those who hated and feared him. So we are told at the beginning this most important fact that God sent the angel. He was not summoned by man. Mary's womb would be the doorway through which Jesus would enter the ring with death and through which grace, mercy, peace, salvation, and hope, deliverance, would enter the fallen world. The angel greeted Mary, saying, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And then adds, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. This word favor, repeated twice in the angel's greeting, literally means grace. Grace is that thing which sets Christianity apart from every other religion on the face of planet Earth. Every religion besides Christianity, test me in this, you can look into it, has as its central premise the idea that man must do something to appease the gods or to earn a reward from from them or to avoid punishment. This is the scheme. God has what is needed. Now, what must I do to get it from him? That is every other world religion. Christianity stands alone, absolutely alone, in saying that God's righteous standards are so high and fallen man is so low that we are utterly and completely helpless and hopeless. There is no way you and I can get into heaven by striving, by earning, by doing. It is impossible. 
But grace is that idea that God has given us the gift of eternal life, not because of who we are or what we have done. It has nothing to do with our deservedness or our resume of good works, but it has everything to do with who He is and what He has done for us. That's grace. Grace is the gospel. Grace is the good news that Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. So literally translated, the angel is actually saying to Mary, you have found grace. He is not saying, as some suggest, that Mary was so remarkable, so pure, so lovely a woman that God found her somehow deserving of the privilege of bearing Jesus in her womb. She did not deserve that. And that's not what the angel's greeting indicates. He is saying, you have found grace. You have found unmerited favor in the eyes of God. And through you, he wants to extend that same grace to the entire fallen race of mankind. So we need to resist any effort to make Mary anything other than what she was. She was a normal girl, a teenage girl, a sinner from a poor family from the small, inconsequential town of Nazareth. She was a woman who was promised in marriage to the equally unremarkable Joseph, a carpenter from the same town. Mary was normal, just as you are normal. But even though we, like Mary, are normal and unremarkable, when we submit our lives to God, we find that He does the most abnormal and remarkable things through us. Uh, something I like to do, but I'm not very good at, is golf. And if you've been golfing with me, you know that. But some people are phenomenal at playing golf. Tiger Woods is somebody who famously is very good at it. And if you handed me a driver, and you said, here, Josh, tee off and whack it, and I had my weird, ugly stance, and I swung it wrong, and I hit it, it would shank it, or it would just dribble off into the field a little bit. I'd do it wrong, I'm sure. You give that same club to Tiger Woods, and he, with all his training and natural skill and giftedness, will just, and it'll sail out there. It'll be beautiful, right? And here's something at work here that we need to see in Mary. Mary is willing to submit her life to the Lordship of her God. It's very different what I can do with my life and what is ca- ca- God is capable of doing in my life when it's yielded to Him. It's me swinging the golf club versus Tiger Woods. And I think Mary is just a normal person. Don't get turned around. It's the same club. It's just she's willing to give her life over into the hands of God. Wield me as you wish. And amazing things are going to happen because of her yielded, obedient spirit. You are normal. But I'm telling you, in Mary's testimony, her example to us is this. When your life is yielded to God, He can do amazing things through you. He can aim you and direct you and use you in ways that would be very surprising. Mary was normal, but what God asked of her was anything but... Though Mary was a virgin who had never been with a man, the angel told her that she would conceive in her womb and bear a son, 
And not just any son, though, the Messiah. And she was to name this boy Jesus, which means Savior or God saves. The angel made the baby's identity clear when he said of Jesus that he would be given the throne of David and that he would reign on that throne forever. This language that every Jew would have understood as pertaining to the promised Messiah. And they get that from the promises that God made to King David in 2 Samuel 7. Mary grasped very quickly, I think, what Gabriel was saying about who this baby would be. Although, like most Jews, she probably believed that the Messiah would be an earthly king, a mere man. Even Jesus' disciples were slow to realize that their idea of the Messiah was different and smaller than God's plan to provide a king who would save them not just from the Romans, but from their true enemy, sin and death, and give them not just a small corner of planet Earth as their kingdom, but a heavenly eternal kingdom, and this promise wouldn't just be for one specific people as they thought, but would be for the entire world, every people of every tribe and ethnicity. And I really wish I could have been a fly on the wall for this conversation between Mary and Gabriel. I wish I could see what an angel looks like. What does Gabriel look like? I wish I had a mental picture of what Mary looked like. I'd like to see the expression on her face. The angel Gabriel, in a few short words, had just broken into the normal, unremarkable life of this girl and had dropped some unbelievable news on her. Now Mary catches her breath, and instead of mocking the impossible... She humbly asks, how can this happen? I'm a virgin. It's a good question. Apparently, Mary was ready to believe that she could be the one who gave birth to the Messiah. But a virgin birth, well, that was beyond comprehension. That was outside the realm of what was possible. Nobody had ever heard of such a thing. And Gabriel answered her as best as he could, or perhaps as far as he was permitted to by God. But his response is kind of poetic rather than scientific in its language. He says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. He does not inform Mary or us about the nuts and bolts of how an infinite God would come to be contained inside her womb. He simply adds in verse 37, nothing will be impossible for God. And although this might leave us with more question marks than answers, it is clear that Jesus was not conceived after the normal fashion. He was born to a virgin. The Romans and Greeks... Both had stories in their religious traditions of gods having offspring with humans. And Luke, writing to the Greek world, is careful to differentiate this account from those sorts of notions. Jesus was not, is not, some half-god, half-man hybrid, like Achilles in Greek mythology. The act by which Mary conceived was neither procreative, nor was it creative. 
God did not partner with Mary in accomplishing it. And Jesus can't be created anyway. Jesus has no beginning. He is himself the creator. And as such, as odd as this seems, he pre-existed his mother. In fact, as weird and trippy as this might sound, Jesus created his mother. He pre-existed the earth. He's God. He always was. So we cannot say that Jesus was in any way brought into existence at the moment he became contained inside of his mother Mary. This is all very mysterious, maybe unknowable, and impossible to understand fully. The Bible is just chock full of these kind of truths that we can apprehend, we can grasp their truth without understanding them fully. And this is one of those moments where we apprehend something about Jesus that we cannot comprehend exactly. We know it's true, we just can't see how it happened. And that's a place that Scripture and God just refuses to illuminate for us for some reason. And that is just exactly how God wants to leave it with us. Do you want a God so small that you can understand him inside and out, that you can tuck him away neatly within the confines of your brain? We worship a God who is so big and unknowable that we as his followers have to become very comfortable with mystery. So although God wants you to know that Jesus was born to a virgin, he does not choose in his perfect wisdom to explain how that could possibly happen. I find it very interesting that after highlighting those other names listed in Matthew's genealogy, and that we come now to the shining star at the pinnacle of this family tree, this Christmas tree, the tree to which we have all been grafted in hope and faith and eternal security, all those other stories find their culmination in this one. Jesus came to redeem, to set right what had gone wrong, to take what sin had twisted and make it straight again, to take what sin had broken and make it whole again. That's the great story of Christianity, and that's my story. And if you've put your trust in Jesus today, that's your story. Our lives are marked by these heartbreaking twists and turns, these horrible choices in which we chose things over God. And Jesus in coming did not bring the hammer. He did not bring wrath. He came as a lamb to redeem, to set straight, to make whole, to reconcile and redeem. He extends his grace and mercy to sinners like you and me and Mary who do not deserve it. Those horrible twists and turns that Matthew highlights in Jesus' own family tree represent in my mind our own sinful pasts. All that we've done that was wicked and contrary to God's law, it's all redeemed in Jesus. Luke 19 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. But this is another surprise that we need to spend a little time with, and I realize I'm running out of time. But why the virgin birth? It's one thing to know that that's something that God wanted us to know, that is clearly communicated. But why? What's the significance of it? Why does that matter? 
Mary wanted to understand how a virgin could have a baby. And Gabriel either could not or would not explain it fully to her. He simply said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. I'm somebody that in my own personal practice with my Bible, I mark it up. I consider my Bible like a tool, like a shovel. And if you went into my workshop and you saw a shovel that looked pristine, (laughs) you would think I never used it. And I think like any tool out there, it's going to get scuffed up, marked up. That's just how tools work. And my Bible is a tool. So I underline, I write in the margins, I mark it up liberally. Everybody's different. You don't have to do that. But if you are in the habit of marking up your Bibles, I encourage you in this line where it says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and then it says, and therefore the child to be born will be called holy. Please underline that word, therefore. In the Bible, those words like therefore link two ideas. And they're very important linking words because the one flows directly from the other. Something about the holiness of God, our ability to look on Him as holy, holy meaning meaning without sin, completely set apart, is linked to Jesus not being born in the normal procreative fashion. So when Gabriel says, is not permitted to explain how a virgin could conceive, He does want Mary and us to understand something of why it must happen that way. And the importance is communicated by Gabriel through the word therefore. Many people will try to say that the conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary is not essential to the doctrine of Jesus' incarnation. Incarnation is just kind of a $5 word, meaning when Jesus took on flesh. But Gabriel does not agree. He says, therefore, meaning because it's true that he was conceived in the womb of a virgin by the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit, because of that, therefore, he will be called holy and the Son of God. Holy because he was born of the Spirit, not the flesh. He did not carry within him the original sin of Adam, with which we are all tainted with at the moment we are conceived. This is a very important distinction. It's true that I'm deserving of wrath because I sin a lot. I, I know God's laws. I know the things he says to do, and I don't do them. And I know the things he said not to do, and I do some of those. And that all makes me deserving of wrath and punishment. However, it's also true that when I was born, I was born stained with the sin of Adam, original sin. David says in Psalm 51 that I was brought forth in iniquity. At the very moment I was born and brought forth, I was stained with the sinful pedigree of my ancestors. However, because Jesus is born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit, he does not carry with him the original sin. And he's the son of God because he was not born of a human father. And I would submit to you that everything that matters hangs off of these truths. That Jesus was born perfectly holy without sin and that he was the son of God. 
And those those two things, which are of such fundamental importance, are owed entirely to the fact that he was conceived in the womb of a virgin by the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. Now, in closing, I would just say this. Now, what do we do with this story? It's full of a lot of technical theological truth, I feel like, this morning, and maybe not even a lot of, like, joyous Christmas celebration. But there is just a tremendous amount of surprise here this morning. And one of the things I think we should take away from spending time with Mary this morning is just this, that God is a surprising God. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But when we allow Him to be Lord over our lives, to direct us, to submit to Him, to yield to His directions, Mary, to her credit, finishes all of this by saying, let it be as the Lord has said. She yields in obedience to the amazing, mysterious thing that God had said. And now all of us have had our own encounter with God. And I just am, uh, I walked away from my time with Mary this week just thinking, God, what could you do in my life if I was as yielded and obedient as Mary? Mary was just a normal person. But you are an abnormal God who does remarkable things with those who are willing to let you. Living a life that is fully yielded and obedient to God will always look strange to onlookers. Mary and Joseph, in accepting their calling as Jesus' earthly parents, were not going to be understood by their neighbors and families. Many people did not believe this story about a virgin birth. And they persisted even into Jesus' adulthood in believing that Mary had conceived Jesus shamefully out of wedlock. In fact, they saw in Joseph's willingness to marry Mary a tacit confession that he was the dad. That there's only one reason why he would have consented to go forward with the marriage, that he must have impregnated her. And we know from other accounts in the Bible that when they did talk about Jesus and his family, they thought that this had happened in the normal way. They did not believe in these stories. But as I said earlier, Mary was the blessed door through which salvation, grace, and hope entered the fallen world. And though she had to bear their suspicions and their judgments in life, Jesus would bear all of her sins and indeed the sins of the entire world on the cross in his death. So let us conclude our story, uh, our study of this story as Mary does. In verse 38, Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Can you say that to God this morning? Would you dare tell God this morning, as Mary did, do with me as you please. Take all that I am and all that I have and use it for your glory. No matter where that might take me or what people will think of me or what it might require of me. Maybe God has been asking something of you and you've been wrestling with him about it. Answer him as Mary did. Give to God everything he wants to take and take from God everything he wants to give. I'll say that again. Give to God everything he wants to take and take from God everything he wants to give. I'm excited to think of what this church would be like 
and all that God would do in our midst and through us in this community if we all followed Mary's example in submitting to him in this way. I do think that when we step out in obedience like this, though, that we will often be misunderstood as Mary and Joseph were. But I think Jesus was never ashamed to be associated with us. And we should not be ever ashamed to be associated with him. And so that's the challenge as we go out from here in following Mary's example on this first great surprise of the Christmas season. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this surprise. We thank you for the amazing way that it echoes in our hearts even to this day. The great surprise that after 400 years of silence in the Bible, that you spoke again, and that you spoke in this way with these words, telling a a woman that she had found favor, grace, and that through her that grace has been extended to all of us. Well, through Jesus in her, rather. Father, we thank you for Jesus entering the ring with death. We thank you, Lord, that in conquering the death on the cross, Lord, that he has given us all freedom and eternal life. He's taken our sin and given given us his reward. Father, all these things are so surprising. But Father, we just delight in who you are on this first Sunday of Advent. And we're so grateful for these wonderful surprises. In Jesus' name, amen.